I'm really blessed and uh, privileged to be able to see you all, see my family, and see Pastor Ron and Derry. We have a lot of faithful people in this house, and I hope you appreciate them. Angie is so faithful, and Joanne is faithful, and the other night, uh, Dave was on the keyboard, and we sang a lot of carols. It was a really great night, so uh, for those of you who don't know me, I grew up in this church, and I'm really nervous because my Sunday school teachers are here watching me. (laughs) They're going to cross-check all my theology, Um, but I send you uh, greetings from Los Angeles and from Orange County, where I'm an associate pastor, and uh, they're praying for you. They know of you, and it's really a wonderful thing when the body of Christ is praying and supporting each other. Uh, I was baptized in this church in the backyard of Pastor Ron, twice actually. The first one didn't quite take. I did it at nine years old. Then I did it at 12, and I'm not even counting the time that um, Sarah, who is uh, Pastor Ron's daughter, pushed me in for an involuntary baptism in that shark-infested pool, but that's a story for another day. Today we're looking, it's a real privilege to talk about the credibility of our Christ and the credibility of Christmas. And what we're going to be looking at is, in our time together, we're going to be talking about prophecy fulfilled in Matthew 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Matthew 1 and 2. Okay, I guess I'm downloaded now. So we're going to be um, spending some time, and we're going to be looking at some prophecies. And uh, for those of you who are younger, prophecies is when God reveals knowledge about the future that no human could know. Because God is outside of time, and God is inside of time. He knows the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And so we are going to celebrate Christmas by understanding that Emmanuel, Christ with us, the Son of God came in flesh as a baby 2,000 years ago in history, and he came to take away our sins. He's the Savior of us all. So without further ado, I'm going to read from Matthew 1, 17 through 25. I'll be reading from the um, New American Standard Version, the, the newer version from 2020. Matthew 1, 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From David to deport from Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did not want to, be, to disgrace her. He planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son, and he named him Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. This is just so profound, Lord. We're in a busy season, and we probably have a lot of things, loose ends to tie up, maybe last-second gifts and relatives and and just the nuttiness of this season. But we want to pause and remember that you came in the flesh, and you came as a Savior, our Savior. We just want to take this time, Lord, and dedicate it to you just to stand in awe of how great a God we serve and how you're the true God, and we can have credibility in the scriptures because of who you are. And for those of us who don't yet know you, I pray that this Christmas will be a different type of Christmas where we actually understand what the meaning is. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, let me just, uh, I'm, a, I'm a professor by trade, so uh, get out your notebooks, okay? There'll be a quiz at the end, but there's going to be six prophecies that we're going to look at. We'll look at three of them in great detail. I think I have a slide of the six. Um, don't worry, we're not going to go over all of them today. This message will only be about three hours, okay? So we'll get you out by dinner. The first prophecy that we're going to look at is that Jesus came from the line of David. And what's really profound is this prophecy occurred almost a thousand years prior to Christ's coming. We're going to look at the virgin birth, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then we're going to give tribute to three of them that we're not going to go into detail, that Jesus was an infant in Egypt, because you remember that as refugees, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt. And this was prophesied in Hosea 700 B.C. He was the target of infanticide, and he was despised in Nazareth. So those are six prophecies made, most of them 700 years prior to the baby being born in a manger. Incredible, isn't it? And so let's not take that for granted. I know for a lot of us who we've been in church for a while, we've heard these things. But even though we've heard it, we just have to pause and really take that in, that, wow, that 700 years prior to Christ coming in the book of Isaiah, and you can find the parchments in the great museums of the world, that there was a prediction of Jesus, Emmanuel, coming in the flesh. And no other faith can make those claims. Islam cannot make such claims. They don't have prophecy like the Christian faith does. And the reason I share this is for the believer here, I want you to have a certain confidence, not in yourself, but that what you're believing is you believe the living God, and it's a credible faith. It's not just a blind faith. Of course, we have to step out in faith, but God has brought credibility in history. Buddhism doesn't make such claims. Uh, Mormonism makes claims, but the prophecies in Mormonism are not true, and they did not come true. The Christian faith is falsifiable. Not false, but falsifiable. That's a philosophical term that means that you can actually take the claims and you can check it through archaeology, through science. And the Word of God makes claims about history, and you can test them, and what we'll find is that it stands with great historicity, and we have great confidence that the God of the universe 
actually appeared in history. And so as a believer, you can feel confident that when I share my faith with other people, I don't have to keep my head down. And for those of you who are seeking or maybe a little skeptical, God says, here it is. Examine for yourself. Come, let us reason together. And it brings great credibility. So, um, you know, I get things right from time to time, too. But not to the level of scripture, you know. Um, we all like to make predictions and prophecies. And um, I don't know, you might remember this because you're from this region. But many, many years ago, there was a very good football team called the New England Patriots. <laughs> now, I know it's hard to believe, but years ago, they used to be very, very strong. And they actually used to be ahead in games. And I remember, and they had a quarterback named Tom Brady. Have you heard of him? Okay. You might have heard of him. Okay, so this is... So I remember watching the game with my, I don't know who I was with, but I remember that it was, it was third and long, third down now, and uh, the Patriots were up. Okay, I know it's hard to believe, but it actually happened in history. They were up, and I said to the people around me, watch this, Tom Brady's going to punt, because I had seen it once before. And it's like, Tom Brady's going to punt, and sure enough, he punted, and I felt really good about myself. Because I had made a prediction. Now, we all make different predictions. Uh, sometimes you might do something a little bit more meaningful. You might see someone in a relationship, and you, you can see that maybe it's not a healthy one, and you might tell someone, hey, you know, um, I don't think this is going to be the healthiest for you moving forward. And maybe time will tell, and they're right. You don't take satisfaction in being right, but what it does is it builds credibility. And that's what the scriptures do is that all these predictions bring more and more credibility to the Word of God. So what I want to do very simply is just to go through three of these prophecies and just show you where they appear in the Old Testament hundreds of years prior to Christ's coming. And then we'll also not only look at the Scriptures, but what is the significance to our life today? Does that sound like a plan? Amen. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Avery. I love it. Um, <laughs> The first um, prophecy is found in Matthew 1.17, and it's that Jesus would be from the line of David. He's from the line of David. So Matthew 1.17, once again, I'll read it. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of to Babylon, 14 generations. And so you see that Matthew is very clear that in the beginning, Matthew was a tax collector and he was with Jesus and he's an apostle. And from verses 1 through 15, he goes through a chronology of all the so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And he's very, very careful because he's appealing to his Jewish audience saying, you know what, the Messiah is to come from David. And it's clear here, you could see that in verse, even verse 6, and to David was born Solomon, and so on. But this was predicted in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. And let me read that for you. This was 950 B.C. Okay, there we go. Is that a little better? Thank you. When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with, the, with a rod of men, 
and with strokes of son of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what's the context of this? Well, what had happened is Nathan was a prophet and, and he, he was giving comfort to David because David was in a time of his life where he was living in a palace. And everyone loves David because he has his ups and downs, but at this time he was finally established in a palace and he, he realized that I'm here living in a palace, but the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And that's not right. I want to build a temple. And Nathan initially felt like, yeah, you're going to build the temple. But then the Holy Spirit came to him and, and said, no, David is a man of bloodshed. His son Solomon will build the temple. And so this prophecy was that Nathan was going to inform David of two things. One, that he wouldn't actually build the temple because he's a man of blood, but it would come through his line. And when you study Old Testament prophecy, there's usually... A prophecy fulfilled in the moment, and that is that David would build the temple. But the secondary prophecy was that his house would be established forever. And that is coming through the line of David to Christ. That Jesus is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We sang about him today that his kingdom is going to last forever. So here we have 950 years prior to Jesus in a manger that there's a prediction that Nathan the prophet informs David that his line would have the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so Matthew touches that. And so that is the first prophecy. What's the first prophecy? From the line of David. Praise God for that. Let's look at the second prophecy. The second prophecy is that he would be coming, the, the Savior, the Messiah, would come from virgin birth. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, let me read it again for you. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop there. Matthew is very, very clear and very careful to make sure it's understood that Joseph was, did not consummate the, the marriage with Mary till after Jesus was born. Verse uh, 18 again, it says, they had been betrothed. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit did a creative act in Mary's womb. And of course, Joseph, being a natural man, but a godly man, wanted to put her away Quietly, And it took an angel of the Lord to reveal to him that, no, this is of the Holy Spirit. And Mary, knowing the scriptures, knew that the Messiah would come by a virgin. And she, she said, let it be done as you say. So, again, a very profound theology in the virgin birth because we know in, in Romans 5, that it says that sin came through one man, Adam, but salvation and reconciliation came through Christ. So that's why it's quite important that it came as a virgin birth. Where was this prediction made? It was made in Isaiah 7, verses 14 
Therefore, and, and again, this is 700 years prior to Christ's coming. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Let me give you a little bit of context. Now, moving backwards, you look into the account of Matthew in the first few verses. It's not on the screen, but you see these lists of names, and it's really, you say, oh, there's a guy named Salmon. That's pretty interesting. And there's this guy named Ahaz. Let me tell you about Ahaz. Ahaz is in the line of David, and he was a wicked king in Judah. And Ahaz is the person that Isaiah is speaking to. Because Ahaz is a descendant of David. And he gave a promise to David, say, hey, look, I'm going to make you, uh, the Messiah is going to come out of your line. The king of kings is going to come out of your line. And Ahaz, who is the descendant of David, was a wicked king. And he was so wicked that he actually sacrificed many of his sons to Molech to a false god. And it was, I mean, isn't it incredible that Jesus came through that line? And so because, the, because God the Father loved David, he wanted Ahaz to repent. And so he says, I will give you a sign. And what is the sign? And, and Ahaz says, I don't want to know a sign. Probably because he didn't want to bend his knee to the God that would give him a sign. And so Isaiah gives him the sign anyway. And he says that the sign is this, is that the child will be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And she will name him Emmanuel. So despite the evil in that line, God is still faithful to his promises. And and that's a little subplot for many of us. Many of us might come from families where our parents are not believers or people in the family, there's a lot of sin and corruption. Despite that, look at God's faithfulness. He was faithful to David. He'll be faithful to your family as well. He told that evil king Ahaz, I will still, the, the virgin will be born, well, I mean, the, the Messiah will be born of a virgin. He said that to Ahaz, and so it just shows God's faithfulness. So this is, The virgin birth is the second prophecy that was uh, spoken about in the book of Isaiah. Okay, let's go to the third one. We sang a song on Friday night, uh, Little Town of Bethlehem. And so this is the first, uh, it was wonderful, it was was a great night, I really enjoyed that. So the Matthew 2, um, the first few verses, talks about that Jesus um, is born in Bethlehem. And let let me read that for you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi of the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a quote 
from the book of Micah, written again about 700 years prior. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will come forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So Micah predicted that the Messiah would come through Bethlehem. And I want you to notice something, is that when Herod, in all of his madness and his distrust of another rival king, when he heard that the Magi were going to see this new king that's to be born, he asked his wise men, where is the Messiah to be born? And they said, Bethlehem. But do you think those who were serving Herod knew God? or following him, many of us, or many people, go to churches, heard about the scriptures, but they still don't believe. And so that's kind of a warning for us, that even those in Herod's court knew that the Messiah would come through Bethlehem. And you know the rest of the story is he tried to eradicate every child, every male child, two years and under, as a result of this. That brings us to a couple more um, prophecies that we won't go into great detail. Uh, number four, the fourth uh, prophecy is that uh, Jesus or the Messiah would be an infant in Egypt. Number five is that he would be a target of infanticide. That was a prophecy made in the book of Jeremiah, 600 BC. And the last one is that he would be despised in Nazareth. That was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. So what are the prophecies? What's the first one? Line of David. David. Second one? Virgin birth. birth. Third one? Okay, good. All right, you're paying attention. That's good. You passed the quiz. So what do we do with this? We have these prophecies, and we see that Jesus is the fulfillment. And regardless of whether or not you're a believer or not, we're going to look at why this is important, why this means something to us today. So let me transition. Let's talk about what is the significance of these six prophecies. Now, you look in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies made about the coming Christ of the Messiah. But the first um, reason why uh, that I think that these prophecies matter to us today on Christmas Eve is, number one, it's an apologetic strength for the gospel. Now, what does apologetic mean? It's not to apologize for your faith. It comes from the Greek word apologia in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, always be ready to give a defense for the reason and the hope that is within you. So as believers, we should be ready and have a reason why we have faith and why we have belief. There is great apologetic strength in the fact that there are prophecies made throughout the scriptures that predict the coming of the Messiah that was indeed fulfilled in history. And that is something that even skeptics have trouble with, is that you cannot look at Isaiah 53, for example, and if you you talk to any um, skeptical scholar, maybe a secular Jewish person, and you, you read the description and you say, who does this sound like? They would say, Jesus of Nazareth. And you say, when was it written? I don't know. It was probably after Jesus was around. No, 700 years prior. 
That's a great strength. And so as Christians, we should keep our heads up. There was a professor from Westmont University, and he looked at eight prophecies, and he said, if you had eight prophecies that happened by chance, what are the chances that one person would fulfill all these prophecies, born in Bethlehem, of a virgin, and so on? They came up with a calculation. It would be like one in one to 10 to the 17th power. That's like winning the Powerball, and then the next day winning it again, and then putting all your money in, and then winning it again. It's, um, they said that if you took a quarter, and you marked one quarter, you've heard this analogy maybe before, and you put one to the, one two times 10 to the 17 quarters across the state of Texas, it would be two feet deep, and you mark one of them, and you throw it in a pile, and a blindfolded person picks one. That's the chances that all these prophecies happened by happenstance. But of course we know they didn't, because that's not a big deal if there is a living God. If there's a God that created, who knows the beginning from the end, and he says before the foundations of the world, the, son, the, the, the lamb was slain, Jesus our lamb, right, was slain, he knew from the beginning of the end, so it just makes the skeptic have to stop and pause and say, wow, this is, I have to really think and consider that the Christian faith is quite different from other faiths because of the strength of prophecy. And like I said before, you can go to the great universities of the world and find the parchments, all the different documents. Yes, we believe that this Bible is the word of God, but even if you're a skeptic, you have to admit that these 66 books written by 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years is so coherent and historically grounded that it has to be true. Amen. And it takes more faith to disbelieve than to believe. And, and that's the second point. So the first significance of these prophecies is apologetic strength. And the second one is coherence of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that you can see in the Old Testament these prophecies just dovetail with the New Testament so seamlessly, do they not? But you have some people that have a caricature that says, well, the Old Testament God is kind of cranky, and I like sweet Jesus in the New Testament, and there was an early um, heretic named Marcion that, that just proposed that as well. He said that, let's follow Jesus, but let's just do away with the Old Testament. Some skeptics say, like Richard Dawkins says, the Old Testament God is like the worst character in all of fiction. Of course, uh, his worldview is, is the fiction. But what you find is, in these prophecies, you see that the Old Testament and New Testament come together. We should be reading both the New and the Old Testament. Um, you look in Exodus 34, for example, when Moses ask God to reveal himself. And what is the first word that God uses? Mercy. The God of the Old Testament is merciful. You remember the story of Jonah. And he was angry because he didn't want those Ninevites to get saved. And he knew that God is so merciful that he would save them. And God does. And then I don't know if you've looked at uh, Revelation 19 lately. Revelation 19, you get a picture of Jesus. And it's often... It's different than what some of us, those precious moments, images of Jesus are. It's a little bit different because, uh, let me read, out of Christ's mouth comes a sharp sword, 
that with it he can smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's intense. That's Jesus. Okay, that's... Some people have an image of Jesus, blonde hair, blue-eyed, you're going to go in his lap and, you know, stroke his hair. That's, I don't know who that is, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so you see, through these prophecies... There is coherence between the Old Testament, who is merciful, and the New Testament God. Christ came as a baby to take away your sins, and you can trust him in that. But when he comes back again, he's coming not as Savior, but as judge. And the question is, are you ready? Are we ready? But the third reason why these prophecies fulfilled are significant is that it shows the character and the trustworthiness of God. Because if God delivered on his promises what he said 700 years before Christ came, then we should also look and see what he said to to Mary. He said, Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They'll name him Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. So if God is truthful about the past, he's truthful about the present. This Jesus can forgive your sins. And he is faithful. And so we take this trustworthiness that this is a God that can be trusted. He's immutable, as it says in Hebrews 6, that when God gives a promise, and he says to David, I'm going to have your kingdom last forever, despite Ahaz's disobedience. God is more powerful And so God is faithful, and he sees it through, and he's faithful to you. He says if you draw close to him, he will draw close to you. So if you seek and you want forgiveness for your sins, and you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to redeem and reconcile you to him. So the trustworthiness of the character of God is shown through those prophecies. Number four is that these prophecies show that Only Jesus, the Messiah, can address the two greatest problems facing humankind. And what is that? It's not climate change. It's not economic problems. It's not famine. It's not even war. There's a lot of things that seem to compete as the biggest issue facing humanity. What's the biggest issues facing humanity? Sin and death. Sin and death. Everyone, no matter who you talk to, <laughs> I mean, they're dealing with the issue of what happens after I die. And what is this of sin? And we have hope in Christ that Christ addresses our problem of sin and death, not because we can do anything, but because he came as the perfect Lamb of God. Because he was born of a virgin and not tainted by this sin nature, fully human, fully God, he came to Bethlehem, which was a place where they had lambs for sacrifices. Jesus was born there to be the ultimate lamb of God to die on the cross for you and for me. And he, he doesn't deny it to anyone. Think of, the, think of God's heart. He's on the cross. He did no wrong. And people are scowling and, and spitting at him and, and mocking him. And what does he say? What is God's heart? You just wait. I'm going to get you. Is that what he said? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's God's heart for you. But we have to respond to his sacrifice.
And that's the, that's the last point, point number five, is that God, through these prophecies, because Jesus is who he says he is, he's not merely human, he is 100% human, 100% God, the Son of God, who died on the cross for us, it gives hope to the unbeliever. It brings conviction to the unbeliever that this God that we believe in isn't just one in a pantheon of gods. It is the living God, the one God. And he loves you, but we don't want to be like Ahaz and just resist that God because we don't want to be ruled. We have to be like Joseph in verses 24 and 25 that says, okay, let it be done, and he obeys. That's our heart. And for you who are believers, have courage. Uh, I see all these young people here, and they, they encourage my heart. It's, this world is not friendly to the gospel. You have to have courage. You have to have strength. But be encouraged. Your faith is credible. It's grounded in history. God is real, and he has revealed himself, and he wants you to have confidence. You don't have to be weird today or tomorrow, but you can be salty and hopeful for your relatives uh, I had one guy in my church who says he's going to do communion with his relatives. I was like, okay, you know, go for it. But you know our unbelieving family and friends, they know you're a believer, they know you go to the church, and sometimes we're a little bit sheepish about it. But have you ever thought that maybe they're looking to you and they're saying, I don't know if this guy really believes, because if they really believed in God, they would act differently. They'd be a little, why don't they ever talk to me about the Lord? Let the Spirit lead you in that, but I want you to have confidence in the credibility of Christmas. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you for these scriptures. I thank you for your prophecies. That you're the living God. You're the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning of the end. No one took your life, but you laid it down for us, Jesus. We just worship you. We praise you. It's just amazing that you came from the line of David, yet you created David. That's just amazing. And we thank you for who you are. And we ask you to empower us, to help us to be faithful to you, and to, that your Holy Spirit would work through us to bring light to a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.